Good afternoon, good evening, good late night, depending on where in the world you are. Uh, today we have an interesting, yes, it's a patient experience, but this patient is Will Gillum. He's a friend of mine and an industry insider. He's worked uh, in, in places with me as well as uh, in hospital areas as well. So he's seen the medical industry from inside out. He's also a, an accomplished uh, jazz musician. Will, that wasn't you on the, uh, the percussion a few minutes ago, was it? I don't think we can hear you. You, you can tell us when we, when we get you started. Um, <clears throat> before we do, though, let's just uh, talk for a minute about other kind of content that you can see on this show. Basically, if you haven't been on this show before, the whole channel is about helping people prolong their life. Uh, healthy life. And um, so anything that leads to heart attack, stroke, and a few other things you'll find on this channel. Previous recent topics, new anti-aging drug. It's not so new as you might think, and most of us have heard about it, but I'll let you take a look at it. The second one is CT angiogram, better than get going to the cath lab. And the short answer is, again, unfortunate if you're a cardiologist or a hospital administrator, but yes, it is. It's safer and you get the same result in terms of long-term impact from a CT angiogram as opposed to going to the cath lab. Um, so again, that gets to my book. We'll, we'll mention that in a few minutes. The book is all about ways not to evaluate heart attack and stroke risk. Uh, third recent content was a very promising new anti-diabetic drug. It was in the New England Journal. Also, um, as with most of the big anti-diabetic drug classes these days, it was also a massive weight loss drug. And when you do what I do for a living, it becomes really, really clear why the drugs that are so good at helping people lose weight also happen to be the drugs that are saving lives in a big way in terms of heart attack and stroke risk. Um, <clears throat> it's not me complaining about other folks, it's the science. The science is really clear that the people that are responsible for leading us out of the diabetes epidemic are not doing so well. Um, my, you know, some of my old cohort at Hopkins, then Mayo, then uh, Harvard, all of the big systems are uh, investigating this and, and printing research, which shows that two thirds of uh, family uh, practitioners, internists and cardiologists don't know how to diagnose the number one cause of heart attack and stroke, prediabetes let alone how to manage it. So this is one of those areas where it's like, if you're a patient, you may not think of yourself as a buyer in a market, but you should, and you should listen to buyer beware. We'll talk a little bit about uh, Will's own experience today, and we'll uh, talk a little bit about some things that he maybe could have, would have, should have done a little bit earlier. But again, uh, even being inside the medical industry, you, you see what the standards 
a practice are, you may not see the total reality. But again, we'll talk about that. So back to the channel, what we do is we try to get that information out there. It's life-saving information. It's uh, going all over the world now. A little bit less than half of our content is taken up by people in the United States, a little bit more than half outside the U.S. This is our core curriculum. These are courses which we're not interested in making money on. We're interested in getting out there. So we give them away for free more than we charge for them. When we've charged, it's been at most 49 and uh, usually more like 29 bucks. Uh, if, you have a, if you want to, to get those, if you want to find out about insulin resistance, plaque evaluation, cardiovascular plaque evaluation, or um, cardiovascular inflammation, key parts of what we're talking about. Things that you need to know, and unfortunately, your doctor probably doesn't. Um, you can get those for free from us. Uh, give us a call. So um, we are also making our content available on some other channels as well. Locals has been very popular with a few of our, a uh, few of our population. So as Rumble and um, now YouTube has a channel. So we're, uh, we're uh, available with that as well. We're making changes. We're looking to start accepting uh, Medicare and other insurance programs. That is a big challenge for a, a little practice like ours. So give us another couple of months and we think we'll be there. I mentioned the book before. The book is all about how uh, the most common ways for evaluating heart attack and stroke risk are unfortunately not the best. Docs tend to think that they know the Framingham risk calculator. So they just memorize it. They ask you a few questions. They don't really know it that well. And there are challenges with that risk calculator. Then the next step is usually, well, let's go get a stress test. And then from there to the cath lab. And usually um, there'll, there'll be some discussion about, you know what, while we're in there in the cath lab, if we see plaque, we may want to go ahead and do a stent. So go ahead and sign off on that now. And studies are really clear. The Orbita trial, the COURAGE trial, that stents do not prevent heart attack. Um, they are life-saving if you're having a heart attack, um, but that's about 10% of the stents that are placed. And those studies are now getting several years old. Uh, they were in leading journals like um, New England Journal and JAMA, um, and the information's known, but again, it's been very slow to turn to turn that uh, to turn that tide. The reaction of a lot of folks, especially the um, uh, some of the surgical community, was, "Well, if stents don't prevent heart attack, then you got to do you got to do uh, you got to replace those those vessels, do angioplasty, a cabbage, um, the bypass." Well, then there was a new set of studies done that were called the ischemia trials. And guess what? The ischemia trials also showed that bypass doesn't prevent a heart attack either. We've got a fellow named Phil Avadia. He's a cardiovascular surgeon, has been doing, he's from one of the Ivy League schools. I, I can't remember right now, but he's been doing um, uh, bypass graphs his whole career. And to his credit, he's admitted that 
you know what the the medical community probably needs to apologize for doing all these stents, all these bypasses, because they really don't do what we thought they were going to do. So what does it changing in lifestyle? And again, uh, we're going to have a major discussion about changing in lifestyle and how to get younger, how to prevent that with our guest today, Will Gillum. Speaking of guests, the um, cardiovascular surgeon, Philip Avadia, that wrote the book, Stay Off My Operating Table, will be joining us in a few weeks as well to tell his story. So we'll start with a couple of quick uh, short content points. One is on patavastatin. There's another way to, re to reach patavastatin. Now, just in case you're not familiar with patavastatin, uh, it is a relatively new statin. It is the only statin that's been made that doesn't increase insulin resistance. So statins are very, very common. Major blockbuster drugs when they came out decades ago. They are protective of heart attack and stroke. However, they also push us into more insulin resistance, which is the major risk factor for cardiac, for uh, cardiovascular uh, risk. So you've got a little bit of a balance there, and that's only one of many reasons why there's so many statin haters out there. There's one statin, it's been around a few years now, but not long enough to lose its patent that does not increase insulin resistance, and that's patavastatin. It's made by a company in Japan, and they know the value of that drug, and it's very, very expensive. Uh, we have, have, we've had a lot of patients who are interested in using it. Um, and most insurance companies are just not ready to give it. A few of them are. It's starting to get there. But here's yet another way. We, we've had a lot of our patients say, okay, you know what? I'm going to get patavastatin. I'm going to get it for a dollar a day, and I'm going to get it from Canada Online Pharmacy. Then we've had a lot of discussion about, well, what about getting uh, the, uh, uh, the generic? There's a plant in India which makes it, and I covered that plant uh, a few, couple of years ago. Some industry insiders came on and said, you know what, if you're worried about that plant, uh, then you should be worried about every generic out there because this is where these things are being made. Now, there's yet another way to access Zepatamag, and it's a different type of generic. Uh, Marley Drug is one of these places where, where you can do that. I get no financial uh, benefit from it, by the way. Um, and they give a thing called Zepatamag. A uh, couple of folks on the channel have used it. I've used it. One has said they got a little bit of an increase in their, I believe, in their... Um, the fractionation. But again, if you have an interest in taking a look at this, um, that's another way of, of accessing uh, a, a form of patavastatin. One other quick short form content, and then we'll get into the discussion for today. Sleep and GLP-1s in patients with abnormal glucose tolerance. You remember I mentioned that I did a trial of uh, GLP-1s myself a couple of months ago. 
And one of the things that surprised me because I'd not heard that from my patients was I had a massive change in the way I slept. I slept a lot better. So it was, I got interested in taking a look at sleep and GLP-1s. Uh, here's one of the articles that I found. There's evidently something there. This was a cross-sectional study. It was in the Journal of Sleep Research, 2017. The researchers were in Thailand. They included 71 patients with A1C levels between 5.7 and 6.5, and quote, no diabetes, end quote. But as most people watching this channel would know, 5.7 is not a safe A1C level, despite what some people might think. So back to the study, they assessed sleep with seven-day activity, whatever, with uh, some recordings and evaluated obstructive sleep apnea with a home monitor. GLP-1 levels were measured during a 75-gram glucose tolerance test, and the area under the curve was measured. Patients with increased obstructive sleep apnea severity had lower GLP-1 response to glucose challenge. GLP-1 agonists might be useful in this group of patients. So what are they saying here? Well, if you go back and you follow the logic of what happened in the study, it's implying the theory that there are some people that have problems with sleep. Those folks might also have problems with insulin resistance, and those folks might also have problems with their own GLP-1 levels. You see, you may remember GLP-1, um, glucagon-like uh, peptide. It's a, um, it is what we call an incretin. It's like a hormone, except it's made by the intestines. It's something that we haven't understood that well until just we're learning a lot more about it over the past few years. So there very well may be, appears to be something going on with sleep and prediabetes, which is not a surprise to many of us. Now, uh, Gilbert, if you will go to the uh, water ball, we'll meet Will. So, Will, you're a, I'll just start off with, you're a jazz musician, right? What, what, were, your, what were your thoughts about our new jazzy uh, intro music? Well, I was going to discuss that with you later. No, no, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I used to be a jazz musician. Uh, made my living that way for a number of years until I finally realized the difference between a jazz drummer and a large pepperoni pizza was a large pepperoni pizza could feed a family of four. <laughs> Bucket of fish. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So we try not to tell most people about that. We've just told probably a whole lot more people than I'd ever want to know. But yes, I did make a living that way for a while. <laughs> well, I should have asked you about that beforehand. As you'll find out there's a lot of things I forgot to ask you before we got on the air. I don't think, I don't think uh, prior musicianship is a HIPAA violation. I don't either. Now, um, <clears throat> speaking of your mentioning a HIPAA violation, I, I did want to mention to folk, and I did mention to them that you're an industry insider. You've been involved with healthcare for a very long time. You and I met over 20 years ago. I'm not going to describe the first couple of road trips that we took together, but I will describe what you did. So back at that time, I've mentioned to folks on this channel that in, during a, about a decade of my life, I was dual certified, um, 
One of my certifications was occupational medicine. 20 to 30 years ago, occupational medicine, worker health was not managed well at all. It's overall better than it used to be, but it was a real mess at that point in time. And I don't have to tell you that. You actually created a company which was set up to avoid some of the problems that the usual actors were having in terms of trying to manage health for workers, um, the hospitals and the specialists out there. That's how, that's how you and I met. Uh, Will, Will ended up creating a company which uh, became uh, part of a larger company that I was uh, working with. Um, one of the, one of the places we got together was with a small company called Toyota. I, I remember Will took me out, uh, to lunch here in Lexington where Will just retired at a, a restaurant, uh, called Emmett's to say, thank you for helping me finally land the Toyota contract. And I said, well, Will, how long were you working on that contract? He said, seven years. Seven long, hard years. But, and you know, three companies. And, and three, three companies. companies. Yeah. So, you know, that seems like a long time for one person to do that. And the Toyota folks, I, I mentioned that to them once and they laughed and they said, yep, you know, here at Toyota, we find that uh, our contractors will say, you know, we work with you, we meet with you, we work with you, we go out to dinner, we meet with you. And then one day we realize, oh, you know what? We've got a contract with them. And we've had one for a few months and just failed to notice it. It's just very typical of Toyota. The, uh, the work that you did for seven years, though, led to a huge improvement in, in uh, employee health for a lot of employees, a lot more than 20,000 employees, just 20,000 at that local plant. And then that has now spread to, uh, what, eight other plants. And guess what? It also went into primary care. We started changing the way we provide primary care, built the third largest volume pharmacy in the state of Kentucky, uh, built pharmacies for other plants as well. So it impacted a couple of hundred thousand people and the way they uh, received their health care. It also impacted a place that's now, uh, I guess, near and dear to your heart might be one, one way of putting it, uh, because since then, you've gone on to be a hospital administrator at a couple of hospitals. So again, if there's anybody that's seen the inside of the, of the medical delivery system, it's clearly been you. Now, uh, what we're talking about today, though, is looking from that perspective, what happened uh, with you and your, and your cardiovascular risk story? You and I got together. You retired, what, six, eight months ago, came back yeah. to Lexington where you'd been before. You gave me a call. We started having coffee every couple of weeks. It was like Wednesdays with Maury or something. <laughs> So then you told me this story, Ford, I've retired. I'm doing some ministries, um, but I'm looking to uh, tell me a little bit about what you do, Ford. I've heard that you're doing some prevention. Let's talk about that. So let's go back a couple of years 
and talk about when you first found out that you had a significant problem in this area. So I've had hypertension for a lot of years. Um, and then, you know, working for hospitals the last 20 years or so, you know, you'd have a, a physical once a year. So in, this was in Chicago. I was at a 850-bed hospital in Chicago at the time. And so, you know, I went in for my physical again for the, to get on the plan. And I can't remember exactly what it was, but it had been about six or seven months prior that something had occurred that I had to get another physical and I had a um, metabolic and lipid panels done. And so it was sitting there and it was relatively fresh. It wasn't 12 months old. And so I, I, I came in to get the results with my doctor, who was an internal med doctor that worked with us. And uh, he said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you're diabetic. I said, what? And so then he showed me the blood results between the A1C was really all he talked about, the A1C six or seven months ago and the A1C currently. And it was in, it was in, the, it was in a bad range. It was in a high range. So what was it? it was about, I think, I want to say 7, 7.2, right in that range. So it was out of range, and uh, this had happened relatively quickly. I think there was a bit of a rise between the previous 12 months and then that one that had been done seven months ago, six or seven months ago. And he said, you could see it rising here a little bit, but it, you know, the last six or seven months, it's, it's gone to where it's, you're diabetic. So that was the, you know, that was the, the process that found it. Um, had I not had that serendipitously that other you know those panels done six or seven months ago it would have you know i would not have that measure and i would have had to guess well you know it would it have been a year so it would have gone a, it would have it would have gone a year before there was anything preventative done about it um so you know that was the first rude awakening was wow if something can happen this quickly it seem seems like we would watch it more closely somehow um so yeah, that's that's how I found out about it. Was put on the, the typical course of treatments, metformin. Put on that, uh, brought things back down. Um, and at the time, he said, you know, I said, what could have caused this? I haven't really changed much of anything. And at the time, the organization I was with was going through eight hundred million dollar growth, um, uh, building growth of uh, new buildings and some remodeling. I think it was at the time the largest in the country of uh, new buildings. And um, I was the executive director, uh, kind of hands-on guy for it and with administration. And it was, it was stressful. And it was, you know, over my head as far as the type of building and the amount of building and the amount of coordination going on. So he said, well, the first thing you got to reduce is your stress. And he said, I know you're not going to be able to do much about that. And that's, you know, one of the leading indicators here of what, what causes, um, you know, these markers to go up. Uh, you know, the other thing is your, you know, your hypertension, we got to get that under control. You need to exercise, you need to eat right, you know, all the stuff. And I said, doc, you know, as busy as we are, the stress is not going to go away. I don't have time to exercise the level that I need to. Um, and, you know, I'm at the hospital all day. You just kind of catch a bite when you can, and it's usually high carbs. So, boy, it's going to be a challenge. And so that, that's the beginning stage. That's where I was, and, and that would have been probably six and a half, seven years ago. So, Gilbert, can you show us the before and after picture of Will? Now that we're talking about um, 
There we go. Now, again, just to clarify, uh, on the picture on the left, Will's the one with the white shirt on. <laughs> and that, that must be your friend with you. Is that right? That's my daughter's one of her dogs. Yeah. <laughs> He's my buddy. So, Will, you've lost a ton of weight. When uh, I've known you for 25 years, and the Will I've known for most of that 25 years has been more like the Will on the couch. Yep, I've always carried for many, many years, I've carried probably an extra 30 to 40 pounds that just I didn't need. And um, I'm fairly tall, so I wore it relatively well. Um, and uh, so I just really never did anything about it. So in that picture there in the white shirt, I'm about 239. And I, and I ran somewhere for years and years, somewhere between 260 to, to 225 or so. Um, so when I retired, you know, I, I hear about guys retiring if they don't start working again or whatever, they, they die in two years. There's all those statistics out there. So I decided I, I'm going to continue to focus. I'm going to continue to pour myself into something. And what will that be? And in my particular case, I'm a, I'm a Christian. You know, I said, I'm going to devote two hours a day to study of God's word and prayer, et cetera. And I'm going to devote two hours a day to my health, to my body, so that I can live longer for my wife, uh, my children, my grandchildren. Uh, and just because uh, my body's the temple of God, I need to respect it. And I don't have any excuses. I also was raised by a Marine lieutenant, and he never took excuses. There's reasons, and usually you own them. And he didn't do victim well, and he didn't listen to victimization very well. So he said, what are you going to do about it? And so I come from that driven into me. So I, I saw myself as really a victim of myself when I look at that white picture and other pictures earlier in my life. I just I just allowed myself to get that way. And I use the excuse of I don't have time for it. And we we all know that that's what we all do. And actually, you can find the time if you if you carve it out. So that's what Ford and I had that talk. And I said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend six days a week in the gym for two hours. Um, I'm going to do cardio and I'm going to do strength training. I haven't been in the gym since probably high school, maybe, maybe college some, but I really, you know, maybe college. So it's been years and years since I've even been in that world. Well, um, that plus Ford, you know, helping me refine a little bit better, really what I'm looking at and the measures of what I'm doing. And I learned from being an administrator, you can't change what you don't measure. And the closer you measure it and the more detailed and refined you are in the measurement of it and, the, and looking at it daily. So you have daily indicators or what's called leading indicators to make a change as opposed to lagging indicators, you know, a month after the occurrence. We learned that as a way to make changes to organization. So I tried to apply those learnings um, and, and this is what happened. Um, you know, I did those things. Obviously, it takes self-discipline to do that, but that's a habit. And most of us know if you start something, um, it, it becomes a habit. And then it, you feel uncomfortable if you don't do it. So I don't know, Ford, if that's giving you enough. But that's kind of the, the emphasis, the drivers, uh, where I was, and then the decision I made to do what I've done to be in a different place. And by the grace of God, here's where I am at this point. 
So, Will, I will say this. I would agree, and I don't mean to, to badmouth and criticize your doc, but unfortunately I do that a lot, um, and, and it just is what it is, because I'm trying to improve the care for uh, preventive cardio cardiovascular disease. Those are, you know, number one cause of death, number one cause of uh, permanent disability, number one cause of dementia, number one cause of kidney disease, number one cause of blindness, and if that's not enough, it also has an impact on uh, boomers' sex lives. So your doctor brought up stress, and it was really clear that stress was an issue. Um, two of the questions I would have is, you said, well, it, it went up. Uh, let's talk about two things. Number one, stress. Did, did he talk about body fat? Did he talk about weight? Yes. And, you know, he was, he was kind about that, but consistent. And, and he, was a, he was a calorie guy. He said, well, you, can, you can't exercise enough to lose weight. If you're eating too much, if you're eating too many calories, it's a losing battle. You've, you'd have to be on the treadmill all day long. And so he, he talked about that balance, and, and I believe that, and I think that's absolutely true. It's got to be an, you know, it's an augmentation to other things that you're doing. So he said, you know, I can just tell you, you can try any diet, any pill, whatever, but if you'll just count your calories, and, and for you probably to lose weight of under 2,000 calories, if you'll just do that, you will lose weight. It's maybe about it. It will happen. So he absolutely did say that, and that was exactly the truth, and that's exactly what I've done is to count the calories, is to look at exactly, and the type of food that I'm putting in, the salt content, you know, uh, forward with your counseling, you know, I try to stay under 100 carbs. I used to, I was on low carb for a while, and I stayed even under that, but that's very manageable. Um, so, so yes, he, he, did, he did address it, but he was always very kind about it. Not like me. Well, yeah, now that you say that. <laughs> My wife says I'm the uh, Darth Vader of body fat. So, yeah. um, and it's because I see the damage that it does. Um, yeah. So one other question before we get into these numbers, um, you mentioned that there was a significant run up from your previous A1C to your one at seven point something. Um, do you have any idea what the previous one was? Uh, 6.5 is the typical time when most docs will say, oh, you've got diabetes. Do you? Remember? Oh, no, it was it was under five. It was it went from under five to over yeah. seven in a, how many month period? Probably about seven months. Wow. Very yeah. interesting. Was there a weight gain associated with it? Yep. How much? Oh, I can't remember that, but I, I'd say, you know, with all that stuff going on, probably 15 to 18 pounds, I would say. Mm. Yep. So I will say this. I tend to see, uh, as you and I were recently discussing, I, I get a little bit deeper in terms of what's actually going on with your metabolism. I look at an old school OGTT, oral glucose tolerance test. And so we follow what we give you a challenge. First, we look at your fasting glucose, then we challenge your, your metabolism with glucose, and then we see what happens one and two hours later. We also see how, look to see how much insulin uh, it requires to get where it 
where it was. And as you and I discussed, yours went right up to the mid 190s. So it, you're better off than you were, um, I'm, I'm sure, because um, there was already some significant weight loss by the time we did it. And you tend to see huge improvements with weight loss. Now, tell us a little bit about these numbers. This looks like some kind of software. So, so again, you know, in, in talking to you and, and, you know, you're the way that you and that, well, you're a scientist. And so you, you brought that forward in our conversations. And so I said, you know, I've got to, uh, what I was measuring was not enough, just my weight and then waiting for blood tests and those types of things. And so I did, did a little bit of research and I found a, a scale that uh, was, seemed to be pretty accurate from all the reports and all the research I could do. And I've got an Apple Watch um, that um, I use all the time for exercise, et cetera. And I realized some of these things talk together. Uh, so I got the scale, um, started weighing myself every single morning on the scale, coordinated it with... Um, you know, the Apple Watch, et cetera. So those were talking to each other. And between my Apple Watch and the scale, uh, ex exercise things, et cetera, the amount of calories I'm burning a day, some of that data I get from the Apple Watch that I watch closely. Um, you know, I watch what I'm calories I'm putting in and what I'm burning and my BMR, BHR, whichever it is in here, those types of things. So uh, that's where I got the data, of, you know, whether it is uh, the most accurate, I don't know that. Um, it's not a medical device, but, but at least it gives me trends. It gives me trends daily uh, and, it, and it shows small movements. So it's, it's, it's accurate enough for me. I know it's pushing me in the right direction and I'm and this alerts me if I've got one of these levels that are going in the wrong direction for one reason or another, along now with more frequent blood tests uh, with my internal medicine doctor as we watch these things closely. So I'm going to ask you to walk us through these numbers in just a minute. But before we do, I'm going to take what seems like a really weird digression. Um, I think I've mentioned to you that we're looking to take our, our current direct pay practice into more of an insurance accepting practice and Medicare practice. One of the key things that's, that's allowing us to do that, that's pushing me to do that is Medicare and their RPM program. Now, what is RPM and what has that got to do with this? So here's the thing. RPM stands for remote physiological monitoring. And what they do is they actually uh, reimburse the doc. They pay the doc and the patient. They pay for the doc to work with the patient to do this stuff. Take the uh, take medicine out of the doctor's office and into the patient's home, and the patients start looking at physi their own physiology. Now that's where medicine's going, and uh, Medicare's been working on that for uh, about a decade. They don't keep something up that long without uh, seeing significant improvement in their health care costs. And you and I are industry insiders, so we talk about health care costs, but I'm totally comfortable talking about health care costs because uh, when, usually, not always, but usually in the right environment at the right time, like something like this, 
when you see uh, decreased co health care costs, you're seeing decreased health care problems. And that's what's going on with these patients with, uh, with RPM. They're beginning to realize that, hey, I've got to look at my own physiology. I've got to take care of my own health. And yes, now I can talk with my doctor, somebody on my doctor's team every month or so about numbers like these. Now, at this point in time, it's not as sophisticated as what you just did. Routinely, what you see is just blood pressure. Then you start to see some blood sugar. You'll start to see weight measurements. And, you know, some of that may be in here. But why don't you walk us through what you did? So, so what I did was simply in the software that I picked out, it gave me all the different metrics, physiological metrics. What was some the of name of um, I'd have to, I'd have to, INEX or something like that. I'd have to look it up. It's, um, it, it escapes me right now. Okay. Uh, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, it wasn't a big name one actually. Um, okay. so, so the measurements are what they are. And actually Ford, I got to apologize, but it's so small on my phone. I don't know. I, oh, I can't, that's I can't right. You can't it. see you it. May, can you? you may have to feed this to me, but I did write a couple of key ones down this morning that, that you and I have talked about at length and you made me, you helped me to realize how dramatic the change has been and how important these changes are to, to really my metabolic age. And so yep. just, just for a couple of high levels, 30,000 foot, you know, again, you know, at the start in February, 239 pounds. Uh, now, as of today, uh, July 27. 195 pounds so that's a big, 44, big deal what is that's a five 45 months, pounds 44 pound yeah uh, 45 44 pound loss okay now bmi bmi went from almost well, 29.1 which is obese with a metabolic age of 75 with that 44 pound loss, I, my BMI dropped to 23.8 with the metabolic age of 69. So, you know, that's, that's significant. That's a big, big deal. You know, and along with that was a 5% increase in muscle mass ratio and visceral fat surrounding my organs went from a high range of 12 down to an excellent range of six. So, you know, those are some of the numbers that I really focus on. There's a lot of other numbers in here as well. And, and those I've, I've more talked to Ford about uh, or I look at the trends. Um, you know, there's still I still have more fat than I need. You know, there's still some that are high, um, about three or four of them now. Most of them were high before. And so now I'm, you know, when I get with Ford and I can borrow you and, and your brilliant mind for a few moments over coffee, I say, okay, what, what can we do now on this area to drill these things down? And so that's where you, you're really helping me Ford again, get to the detail and, and to say it again, and, you know, just with the remote monitoring that you just mentioned and healthcare in general, which was so frustrating with me when I was the hospital administrator, the coordination of care is one that frustrates me greatly, but the prevention of things. And, you know, we know as businessmen, you cannot change anything. You cannot move it if you do not measure it. And you need to measure it on a leading indicator basis, not a lagging. And you need to measure it to the greatest amount of detail that you can. And you need to look at it daily 
and put action plans in place daily. When you do that as an administrator, we know you will change finances of a hospital. You will change quality outcomes of a hospital. I mean, I've seen that work. It is absolutely guaranteed. There is no option. It will occur. It won't occur on a lagging basis. It won't occur if they're lazy statistics, if they're inaccurate statistics, if they're not as detailed as possible. So that is the principle that I think, Ford, you're applying to primary care as preventative, uh, as educational, as informative. And, you know, um, this, what I have done is, is nothing that, that anyone could not do. But I could not have done this had I not gotten to this level of detail on the measuring and the daily measurements. Uh, that is the thing that has made the difference. My awareness of what I'm putting in my mouth, my awareness of staying on that treadmill an extra, you know, 10 minutes, that awareness of watching my watch to see how many calories I'm burning during my strength training and doing 30 more set, you know, 30 more reps or two more sets. I mean, that's what that causes the action in the moment on a daily basis to make the change. Uh, the knowledge is there. We know what we're supposed to do, um, but there's many things we're supposed to do. This has helped me to organize it and focus it in a way that's attainable. So. Well, thank you for that. How about if I read some of these numbers off for you? I can read yeah, it. That'd be great. Body fat decreased from 28.6% to 21.5%. Uh, and interrupt me at any time you have a comment. Yeah. Fat, fat free body weight, 170.9 to 157.2. So your muscles got denser. A lot of people say, oh, you know, they, they get very worried and very concerned. And they should about muscle mass. And you and I will talk about muscle mass in a few minutes and muscle uh, metabolic content. You did get a decrease. You know, part of that weight loss is a decrease in muscle mass. Yeah. But I'm not worried about that. Uh, you're, most of it was in body fat. And we do need to expect that um, there's, it's more important to have that ratio of uh more muscle mass, less fat. Uh, we're going to talk about a fellow named Richard the Ant Hawthorne. The He's ant, a great yeah. example of really, really strong and very metabolically active muscles. So before we do, though, so subcutaneous fat from 25% down to less than 20%. Visceral fat from 12 down to 7 Body water, 52% up to 57%. So uh, for those who aren't getting that, muscles contain water. Uh, fat contains fat. So as, as you lose body fat uh, and, get, and increase your ratio of muscle to fat, you're going to increase your water content. Well, the other thing, Ford, as you know, um, and we've discussed, you know, diabetes also and, and hypertension, both they, they beat on the kidneys pretty hard. And then yeah. I'm doing medications and you got to flush. So, I mean, the other thing that I watch closely and I measure is, you know, I set up um, four 
two liter bottles of water for myself every day and I drink them and I mark them off when I drink them. So that's increased the, the water content as well. Good point. Thank you. Increase in skeletal muscle from 46% to 51%. Some decrease in uh, muscle mass, as we discussed, 162 down to 149. Bone mass decreased from 8.7 to 7.9. Protein increased from 16 to 18. Basal metabolic rate from 20 uh 2043 calories to 1910 calories so again that was a what your body weight loss from 240 down to 190 that was a what 20 percent weight uh decrease in weight but only a 10 percent decrease in basal metabolic rate so what you what you shed over half of what you shed was just not doing anything anyway. It was not burning any yeah. calories. Um, and then weight, uh, like you said, from two forty five or two forty down to one ninety five. Metabolic age estimates from seventy five years old down to seventy, and now actually what? it's sixty nine today. Sixty nine. Yeah. Good for you. Congratulations. Now, uh, one of the things we, we talked a couple of times and you and I talked a few times during our coffee meetings about muscle and the best way to train for muscle. And there's a big deal about, um, you know, there's a lot of guys and we'll get a lot of haters on this on this next uh, the next couple of comments, because there's a there's a, a strong community and, and they have a point. But only it only goes so far that. Uh, they talk about only doing like five reps and getting as much as you can out of five reps. You and I talked about that a little bit more. And, and I said, you know, I come from a slightly different school. I agree maxing out, but not until you've already had significant glycogen depletion in your, uh, in your muscles. You've warmed them up. You've already de depleted a, a good bit of the glycogen. And, and we're talking about, you know, a ton of reps up to uh, 60, 80, even 100 with, with the first half of them with, at embarrassingly low weights, even when they're. Ford, I'm going to interrupt you for a second because you, you, you significantly changed my strength training during that conversation because I came from what I knew, which was from high school and sports and football and things like that. And it was, you know, maybe 12 reps, uh, yeah. you know, three, three 12s and, you know, high weight uh, and, you know, bust it that way. Well, you know, I, 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 I didn't go completely that way because I, I was concerned about tearing tendons and doing things at, at my age. And so, but I was doing the 12 rep, three 12s. 36 total reps. And um, you said you might, you told me what you just said, and I changed to 90 reps. I lowered my weights. I made sure my form was exactly correct. I, I tell my grandson, perfect practice makes perfect, not practice makes perfect. And I know that to be true as a musician, because if you're practicing wrong, you're going to play wrong and you'll mm -hmm. never get it. So, so I figured, okay, I'm going to change this around, which I did. 
significant difference in my calorie burn, significant difference. So I did that for months, couple, and then I met with you again. And I said, you know, but I would like to bulk a bit because I'm losing so much bulk of my body. And um, and you said, well, and that's when you brought in what you were just getting ready to say, you know, you do you you do the glycogen or whatever it is burn first. You do the high reps, the lower weights, and then maybe that third set, you know, you do 230s, and maybe that third set you do 15 or 20 with a significantly higher weight to 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 kind of burn that type of a, a muscle. And that's what I do now. And um, first of all, I'm not embarrassed when I walk away from the machine. The next person saying, "Is that all you're lifting?" No, I'm kidding. It 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 really has helped me to feel stronger. Um, you know, I mean, I haven't been doing it long enough to make any, you know, visible difference, but I can feel the difference and it actually seems to burn some more calories when you add the two together. So I'm sorry, yeah. I didn't want to interrupt, but I did want to make that clarification. No, thanks for the interruption. So, and, and your perspective on it. So I, I didn't, uh, I, I got that from a couple of names. One of them's very well known, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, he, He's got the quote of reps, reps, reps. All I ever do is reps. I'm sick of them. And I'm going to get up and do them again tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, but then there's another fellow that not that many people have heard of. He's a big favorite of mine. Um, and his name is Richard the Ant Hawthorne. The ant, his nickname comes from his holding several world records at multiple times on <clears throat> multiples of his body weight that he's lifted so, <clears throat> so is, is that sort of the environment that you're lifting in when you're in the gym with all Precisely. the bending and yeah. Yeah. all oh, the yeah. guys yeah. around in the cage hollering for you yeah, absolutely <laughs> as we mentioned before that you know that looked a lot like you there yeah yeah so uh you know he's he, uh hawthorne is a gym rat he stays in the gym all the time like schwarzenegger and some of these other folks that that's their career. And he said it too. He said, you know, it's lots of reps. He said, no, we don't skimp on, you know, the final, the final ones where we're blowing it out. We're using a lot of, a lot of weight, a lot of intensity, but we do that glycogen depletion first. So I wanted to cover that uh, in our discussions today. Now uh, let's take a look. We have, we have a good bit of people on. You mentioned medications. I did want to uh, to cover those for a few minutes because uh, you're you're taking a couple of medication classes that have really started having a huge impact uh, on cardiovascular uh, the CVOTs, cardiovascular outcome trials. Um, the SGLT2s and the GLP1s. Now, um, one of the interesting points about you and the GLP1s is you started a GLP1, what, year and a half ago? No, that's the Trulicity you're talking about. Right. Yeah, that was probably two years ago. Two years ago. Yeah. So uh, Trulicity and the GLP1s, especially uh, Ozempic. Um, Which is what I'm taking now. Yeah, semaglutide is uh, also the most. I mentioned it earlier on. It's it's the most popular and 
probably the most effective weight loss drug that we've had in a long time or ever. But your example, your case demonstrates something very interesting. You were on a GLP-1 for two years, but didn't, didn't have that kind of weight loss. Tell us a little bit more about you know, that. You know, for those of us who are saying, oh, all I need to do is get on one of those GLP-1s and I'm going to lose all this weight. Hmm, you're, you're pretty much, you're pretty clear evidence that that's not exactly the case. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, it was, of course, again, we're talking stress, you know, at that time when I started on those, um, we were going through COVID, which was a new thing. And I was a CEO of a hospital operations and talk about stress. I mean, you know, and talking about the unknown um, couldn't have been a worse scenario. And so I'm sure that's a part of it. Uh, and again, not finding time to eat right and those types of things and zero time for exercise. Or, or energy to do so. So I think probably the, the combination of that, you know, or, or let's just say the additive of that along with the Trulicity made it really have pretty much negative impact. I think right at first, maybe I had a little bit of a loss, but it was, you know, a pound or two. It wasn't anything significant and it wasn't, it wasn't sustained. Um, so again, Ford, like I hear you say all the time, it echoes in my mind, lifestyle. The lifestyle was not you know, conducive to even that drug, which is impactive and, and effective, having much of a weight loss uh, impact on me. Thank you for sharing that. So I'll tell you what, uh, what I would suggest that we do is that uh, you, we've got a few questions I'd like to, I'd like to respond to. Uh, before we do, do you have any, uh, any cap, any 50,000 foot summary? You know, no. Uh, yes. I mean, bottom line is, and, and you know, um, like you say, we got, we kind of cut our teeth in workers comp. And the reason that we got involved in workers comp was because it was, uh, it was a huge overspend by companies all over the country, especially in California and things where the workers comp laws were very liberal. I mean, work stress could be counted as compensatory and those types of things you remember those days, Ford. Um, and so what we did is we, we simply brought not managed care in the financial form of fee schedules, et cetera. Um, we brought true managed, first of all, preventative, because anybody that came into the clinics during the day the nurse would give an aspirin if they had a headache. Then they'd kind of give them, you know, a quick check over, check their BP, look for skin cancer, whatever. So it was preventative. We had medical team there looking after the health, trying to be preventative. You know, that was that was significant. Moreover, and maybe the most important thing that is probably lacking, I think, in, in healthcare today as a system, is the coordination of that care. Uh, starting with the primary care physician uh, and then going to the specialists, to the imaging centers, to the cath labs, to all those pieces and parts, and then coordinating it back so that there's one story being looked at and one story being walked through with an individual. And again, it's managing the detail on a daily leading edge basis as opposed to lagging, not just reacting to sick people coming to you. And I can I can say that, you know, just as you said, I know we impacted many, many people. And then I had the, the honor and the privilege to be the administrator of a MCO managed care organization 
for workers' compensation in Kentucky when they changed that law in, I think, 95. We put together an MCO and, and got it um, approved, uh, certified, and so we touched thousands of lives with that as well. By and again, we did not reduce fee schedules for doctors, to which is what the insurance companies did with, with their models that they brought into town, their MCOs for work and workers' compensation. We paid the fee schedule. We just asked them to manage the care. And so we had a certain way that we did that. I won't bore you with the detail, but but again, I knew and learned from our days in, in workers' comp work that if you manage the care, it will work. And again, it's magnificent simplicity. It's just like what I started talking about of measuring things and doing the detail it, or not eating calories. You will lose weight. You know, the crazy thing is in the world and in life, there are just so many things that are true and they just work 100 percent don't don't confuse it with 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 too much thinking what is the analysis to paralysis just do the right things in the right way at the right time for yourself or for if it's a healthcare organization or a doctor provider do practice that way do the right thing even if it hurts a little bit when you make the change which is what we of course witnessed when we tried to take this model to many corporations Ford and I were talking about this yesterday how we talked to some people and most people at that level that we were talking to their goal in life every day is not to make any big decision because any big decision is potential end of their career because it could go wrong and so that was a tough, it was hard for us, but we believed in what we did. And we're still both following that same healthcare mantra is do the right thing in the right way with the right providers in the right time and then coordinate all that together. And, you know, Ford, I know, and I'm proud to, you know, be your friend that that's what you're about. You're about preventing things. Um, and I know that I have just probably prevented uh, certainly an earlier death. And, you know, the question is, can I maintain this? You know, well, I've done it for almost a year. Um, it, it started slow and then it's gotten better. And so what we've talked to you about is really the refined portion these last, you know, five months. Um, but now I've got a program in place and, you know, anyone else can do that as well uh, with similar tools. Doesn't have to be the same tools. And uh, whoever's listening, I would just encourage you it's doable. I mean, if I can do it, anybody can do it because I'm, you know, I'm an old jazz musician. I don't have much discipline. Uh, so uh, anyway, Ford, that's just all I wanted to say. Thanks. Well, I appreciate that. You know, it's interesting. It's hard for a lot of people to to make the connections. But what you and I did in healthcare, and still do in healthcare, and um, what other companies did like Toyota, they were a major mover in going into something that they called preventive maintenance, yeah. figuring out what was going to go wrong before it did and fixing it before it did. And that's what you and I did 25 years ago in workers comp. That's what we just did this past couple of years in Alabama with Medicare Advantage. That's what we'll be doing soon with remote physiological monitoring. And I'll, I'll have I'll I'll share a, a quick uh, story on you, <clears throat> but you know, for most of those activities, 
from a business perspective, what we were doing was building uh, businesses that basically um, financially we were picking the pocket of the hospital. That's what, what we would say. And the reason for it was we were keeping people out of tertiary care. We were keeping people from getting sick. We were keeping people from having to go to the ER. You know, just uh, one thing, you were involved in getting that Toyota program up and rolling. And I mentioned the primary care side of it. I spent about, I lived about half time at the uh, San Antonio plant for about three years, getting the primary care system up and rolling. We, uh, Toyota, we spent about seven million uh, getting that program started and the first year of providing care for the employees there and uh, more than paid for it back within a year. Now, how did we do that? Well, one thing we did was we paid over three times the amount expected from other plants or from uh, other plants in the area, other industries for primary care. So we had, we hired our own primary care folks. We taught them how to do primary care and prevention. And we really pushed uh, programs which would get people in to see a primary care doc, to get people in to take care of their health and look at prevention. So how did we save money by paying three, over three times the amount for primary care and prevention? It came out of the hospital, hospital inpatient care, hospital uh, emergency room care. Um, Those are the sort of things where you see, again, if if your hospitals are are growing, that's probably not a good sign for the community. Now, I'm not going to ask you for a response on that because, again, you've been over, uh, over there trying to juggle all of the challenges the hospitals have. It's not a criticism of the hospitals. It's a criticism of people not doing prevention. Not before. Doing- let me. Let me. I'm sorry to interrupt. Let me. Let me. I do have something to say about that because, and we talked about it a little bit yesterday morning, from a hospital administrator's perspective. You know, fortunately, I, I've I've only worked. Not fortunately, but it's been my experience only to work in tertiary quaternary type hospitals. And uh, in Chicago, it was tertiary quaternary, level one trauma center. Sickest to the sick, hurtest to the hurt. Uh, and in Hazard, it was um, uh, tertiary, servicing multiple, um, you know, small community hospitals and, and that type of thing. So critical care, critical access kind of a, uh, hospital. Uh, hospital. So um, we need to, as, a, as hospital systems, they want and should be treating the level that they're built to treat, the staff to treat, equipped to treat, and pushing lower level healthcare patients into a higher, a tertiary quaternary level one trauma center hospital hurts that hospital. And it hurts the truly sick and hurt people that can't get in because the beds are full. And most of these tertiary quaternary level ones they're over capacity. Uh, we ran in Chicago in the 80s all the time, 87%. I mean, that's too much for a hospital. In Hazard, same thing, high, high uh, census all the time. 
And a lot of the reason was there was people there that really didn't need to be there, but we were caring for them. If it's MSHA, you know, I mean, Mtala, they come in your ED, you, you've got them. Okay. They were so, using the ER for primary care. Exactly. Or, or they're, you know, they're in there for lower level things than we were prepared both by staffing and equipment and the room setups. You see what I'm saying? So, mm -hmm. so it, it's not picking the pocket. It's helping to sort the yeah. patient base to where it should be. Again, just like we said years ago, Ford, the, the right place at the right time with the right provider, you know, doing those things, sorting it out and putting the patient where they need to be, but having someone be accountable for that care, the true accountable care. Okay. Right. Someone actually managing and saying, okay, now I know that you're, you started here, but your disease has progressed or whatever. So now you got this specialist involved. I'm still coordinating with that. Now we've got these um, advanced imaging things, diagnostics, these things. I'm going to help coordinate all those. We're going to have conversations. You know, it's, I, I used to love tumor board. I used to go to tumor board all the time because it's a wonderful collaboration between surgeons and oncologists and, and other disciplines in a hospital to look at a case and do what I thought and which, what we did in the occupational health visit, truly coordinate the care and even discuss what are some of the different options. And you've got different people with different experiences and different levels of knowledge of different cancers. What a wonderful thing that was to see and to be a part of, to know that at least in this discipline, and we do that in other disciplines as well in hospitals, but it's just... It's, it's, it's very clear, and it is a great example of coordination of care when you see it in a tumor board meeting. So anyway, um, I, think, I think that's an important part of what you're saying, and I think that's the end in mind, is to get people where they need to be. And I think any hospital administrator that feels like you're picking his pocket or her pocket, I, I would really question the intent there. Because... Yep. You want if you're doing the you're right thing, you want exactly. it to happen that way. That's exactly right. Very, very good point. Thank you for the clarity. First comment I'll say on the Q&A is to thank you again, Will, giving us a great uh, perspective in terms of, like I said before, an industry insider, understanding how the sausage is made, understanding how uh, health care is delivered. Um, My pleasure. And also helping us, you know, sharing with us what you do in terms of or what you've done in terms of major successes with your own diabetes. So we're going to go through some uh, Q&A. Bart Robinson uh, from New Jersey. Very good day to everyone. Good day to you as well, Bart. Don Stewart, HDL is 42, triglyceride 63. And that's. You know, most folks would say that's a great ratio, 1.5. But if you spend much time watching this channel, you know, I'd rather see us get to less than one. And 42 is a fairly low HDL uh, number. Uh, one of the clearest and best ways to, to decrease, I mean, to improve your HDL is to decrease your carbs. Don knew that. He already said, look, I eat 10 or less carbs per day. Um, and I do take five milligrams of Crestor. Exercise as much as I can. What else can I do to get HDL up? Uh, really good points, Don. Um, just a couple of comments about how that happens. So 
when we have carb metabolism problems like uh, Will has, like I have, like uh, over two thirds of uh, boomers have, the, uh, the large dense HDL as well as the large dense LDL, instead of carrying cholesterol, they tend to carry fatty acids. And when those fatty acid laden particles pass through the liver, they get metabolized. So that tends to decrease our HDL level. I'm going to share my own HDL uh, in labs in a couple of weeks. I had my welcome to Medicare exam. I used to have uh, HDLs in the low 40s. That was one of my frustration points during most of my youth. And now that I'm 65, I've got an HDL up in the 80s. So I'm doing, doing well there. And it's from managing carbs. It's also from doing some other stuff as well. And, and that's part of the question that you have, Don. Um, fish oil is a significant, uh, tends to, to have a significant improvement in that area. Um, there's a prescription medication, Vasipa, uh, which we tend to look at for folks with, uh, with uh, triglyceride problems. It's a potential for this, but again, we, we want to look at some other metabolic issues first. The first thing I would look for would be um, body fat. Uh, I would... I would guess that given some of the other things that you're telling me is that you have a relatively low body fat uh, content, but I don't see that there. So that's one of the next places my body, I mean, my, uh, my brain goes when I start looking at questions like that. Um, it also, yeah, Ford, that's a, that's a good point. Cause I noticed, and you noticed in my numbers, my body fat, fat numbers, even with all that weight loss are still high. Yeah. And um, and that tends to, you know, like I said, you know, like my wife says, I'm the Darth Vader of body fat. But you see why it, it shows in our, it, it. We used to think body uh, fat was a an inert energy storage tissue. Five to 10 years of research over the past five to 10 years has become very, very clear. Um, it's not. I covered it in. Um, there was a, an award-winning lecture called The Secret Life of Fat Cells. And, uh, and it won a few awards with the ADA, American Diabetes Association. And, and the point that he's making in there is that fat cells are an endocrine tissue and they drive this problem. The most common uh, prediabetes, insulin resistance, diabetes, the most common uh, cause of heart attack, stroke, uh, early death, uh, disability, blindness, kidney disease. And what is, uh, what's interesting is uh, it boils down to some very simple things. There are two things that drive this issue. One is aging. The other is, you know, there's some genetics and other issues, but one is aging. One is body fat. We can't change our age. So Robert Weiss, the North Georgia mountains. Good morning. Hit training question more often during an exercise or longer during an exercise. I walk, jog, hit in one mile laps, six laps a day. So, um, a one mile lap, uh, of hit sounds like, I mean, unless you're, um, running 60 miles an hour, you're doing several minutes on your, on your high intensity interval. And, 
I would tend, I tend to push for shorter, more intense, uh, high intensity interval sessions, like less than a minute, uh, 45 seconds to a minute at high intensity. And then that amount of time or even a little bit more at a, at a very low intensity level. Um, a, a lot of, you know, a lot of people don't want to do high intensity intervals, especially as we get into our sixties. And the bottom line is they're uncomfortable. They hurt. Um, and if something's uncomfortable, it hurts. We don't want to do it. Well, one, but it's often one of the most important things we can do in terms of our, um, our health. One of the most productive things, same thing with work too. You know, it's the stuff that you don't like doing every day. Uh, and those are the things that make a difference. Uh, fasting is, is very similar to this. It makes a big, big difference, but it's hard to start it and it's hard to keep doing it. Margaret D. Good morning from Winnipeg, Canada. Good morning, Margaret. Bobby O'Camp. Friendly Manitoba. Friendly Manitoba. There you go. You, you spent much time in Manitoba? I did. I did two tours up there. With the hospital or military? Uh, music. Uh, oh, with, music. Uh, there you I go. The Crystals and Charlie Pride at the time. Oh, there you go. Bobby Ocampo, Mabuhai. You know what that means, Will? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I don't exactly either, but it's a greeting. It's a Filipino greeting, and I think it means live long and prosper. Um, oh, I like that. Gil Gilbert, what what's the exact meaning? Yeah, long live. Long live. Long there life. we go. Uh, I used to say Mabu Hey, and then Gilbert, as you know, as you notice, he was, he's good at correcting me and getting me improving my performance, getting me where I need to be. And he said before one of our meetings, he said, "Doc, I need to tell you about Mabu Hai. It's Mabu Hai, not Mabu Mabu Hey." So thank you for that, Gilbert. Does a great job managing the show. Et himself, sunny Okanagan Valley here. Familiar with that, Will? Do any tours no. there? No. Okanagan, I have no idea where that is. Bobo, Bobby Ocampo, niacin with chromium improves insulin sensitivity, Mayo Clinic. Yes. Um, I, there's, some, there's some significant evidence out there for uh, a lot of supplements, and one of them is chromium in terms of improving insulin sensitivity. Linda Bruckner, good morning from Ju. Uh, from a Jubilee Health patient living in Gulf Shores. Thank you so much. So uh, several times, uh, often when I uh, will go into the clinics down in Alabama, I'll run into folks that the somebody walking into the clinic will stop, look at me for a second and say, hey, doc, Dr. Brewer. So it's uh, good to hear from you, Linda. I appreciate that. Harvey Ops, new inflammation test from LabCorp. Glyc A, is this better than CRP as an indicator? I don't know. I haven't looked at it yet. I can tell you there are literally dozens of inflammation indicators. Someone was asking me about a different indicator yesterday. Um, <clears throat> the ones that I use tend to help us focus on different steps of cardiovascular inflammation because there are types of inflammation that really don't have anything to do with cardiovascular 
inflammation. Uh, there is crossover. For example, as most people don't know, most people do know that diabetes causes heart attack and stroke. Most people don't know that rheumatoid arthritis is as big of a risk factor hmm. as diabetes if you have it. In addition, um, uh, psoriatic arthritis, not just routine psoriasis, but psoriatic arthritis. Some of the other inflammatory diseases, again, bleed over into causing cardiovascular inflammation as well. So you would think that uh, anti-inflammatory drugs would help. Well, it turns out that a lot of them do, but a lot of them don't. And so that's one of the conundrums that we deal with in this space. William Brewster, do you have an opinion on the amino acid GABA as a sleep aid? I found it to be helpful. Some medications interact with it, so one should do their research. So I do have a, a, a comment about all sleep aids. Um, clearly the prescription level sleep aids tend to, to backfire. They tend to boomerang in terms of your body developing a dependence on them. Now, the non-prescription um, non sleep aids, like you know, amino acids, melatonin, um, do they really have that, that problem? Some would say yes, some would say no. I, I would agree that the evidence is just not that clear right now on those type of sleep aids. Uh, Bobby Ocampo, how do we measure metabolic age? Well, Will, do you want to, uh, you want to speak to, to how they were estimating metabolic age? In, uh... I, get, I can't really forward because, again, it's part of the software package, and I'm sure it's taking all that data, all those numbers. Um, uh, you know, many of those numbers, again, were in the, uh, the bad range. I won't say high because some of them you want to be high, but in the, in the negative range. Uh, and so I think they look at they they it's an algorithm or whatever that takes all of those measures and then as you raise especially certain key ones like BMI et cetera it significantly changes that so that was just simply the outcome or the output of that piece of software I would have no no clue on exactly but I'm sure it's some some formula algorithm of those measures you bring up a good point and and you have to be careful with those. Um, I would agree BMI is a major driver, has to be a major driver on a proprietary system like the one you just described. The labs have started doing that. So it's interesting um, that labs have started doing that with insulin resistance and they'll give you an insulin resistance score. It's sort of like, depending on that though, is sort of like depending on A1C alone as um, you and I discussed before the show, I don't think we talked about it during the show yet. Doctors typically say they're looking at A1C. Uh, more often than not, uh, diabetes is discovered from a, a fasting glucose, uh, not even from an A1C. And the American uh, College of Endocrinologists, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinology as well, both have said A1C is not the best way to diagnose diabetes. And that's because things that change hemoglobin can change the A1C. Now, when you start looking at that, uh, you find that it's very, very true. You also find that A1C, um, 
for my purposes, I find more erroneous A1Cs just because of diet. If you don't eat carbs, your blood sugar is not going to go up. And I have plenty of full-blown diabetics with blood uh, with A1C values in the very low fives. So you, you got to know what you're looking for. Now, to this point about proprietary uh, systems, uh, Quest has this, uh, LabCorp has this. I know that the lab that, uh, that did your labs, uh, Will, had some stuff where they said, okay, here's the, uh, the insulin resistance estimate. And on mine, for example, it said I had no risk at all. And again, I know I'm full-blown diabetic. I'm managing it. Uh, so therefore, all the metabolic components like A1C or fasting glucose that they would put in their proprietary systems are going to be low for me. So therefore, they're going to say, well, I don't have a problem. So that's one of the biggest areas where you can run into some challenges. I, I think you knew what you were looking at. You, there, most of your stuff was very real. You knew it, and you were using it to follow it. So Yeah, a trend is simply all know. I was looking at. I wasn't looking at that as an empirical number, and I know that there's many extenuating cancer accidents. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's that's not a real number, but it's, but it's a trend. And it helps you track. Like you yeah. said, if you're not tracking, not measuring, you're, you don't know whether you're improving or not. So Gator says, congrats on the huge turnaround on your health. I know from Thank my you. own changes that you don't totally realize how sick and tired you were until you aren't sick and tired anymore. Yeah. True. True. Okay. Bobby Ocampo, how to measure muscle mass. No, uh, any comments from you on, on they were looking at your, their, uh, your muscle mass. How do you think they were calculating or estimating that? I would have no idea. I mean, there's some biometrics in this scale. You have to stand on it barefoot, et cetera. So there's some electronics going through my body measuring, I guess, resistance. And I would assume that's how they're doing it. It's a resistance as it travels through. There, it's a, there's some very popular, multiple different types of, um, scales look at resistance, uh, electric mm -hmm. re resistance. And they're, um, they have some challenges in terms of, um, you know, just how much are you sweating today? Uh, did, did you come over from a workout and therefore you're sweating a little bit more or was yeah. it before the workout? So um, those are some and challenges. That's, that's one of the things they talk about is to measure, is to do your, do your weight weigh in first thing in the morning before there's any food intake before there's any you know workout or sweating i mean nothing and so that's that's when i do it is literally uh a few moments after i get out of bed i may use the bathroom and then i i come out and that's the literally the first thing i do it, it goes right to my phone uh and it, it and again that's when all these numbers are are calculated etc and given to me uh so i so at least i know again I'm getting, I'm getting consistent numbers to trend. I'm just looking at this as, as, as a daily trend measurement. Um, uh, I know that it's trending in the right direction. Even if the numbers are wrong, the trend's in the right direction. So I'm kind of looking at it more globally. Again, folks, remember I'm a jazz musician. I don't read music. I do read music, but I, you know, I just 
I play it by ear. So that's kind of where we're approaching this. So it's a great point, and it's an issue that I've had concerns with for 20, well, 30-something years. And I get very frustrated about, uh, I, you know, they're sort of like spouses and friends. You can't live with them, can't live without them. You got to have scales. You got to be watching your body weight. But you also have to be looking at it from, you know, how much of this is muscle, how much of this is fat, how much of this is water. And there's Kentucky windage going on there trying to make an estimate. There has been significant improvement over the past few years in that area as well. Unfortunately, it's just not out there that available yet. It's called DEXA scan. Hmm. And uh, there's some large cities that have DEXA scans available to the public. Uh, I've looked for them here in Lexington. It's off and on. You know, you'll hear about a, um, a preventive clinic over at UK comes up and they've got a DEXA scan and then the clinic closes down. So. At some point, I think it may take 10, another 10 to 15 years to get it available to all of us, but we will at some point be able to get really good estimates of just how much of our body is body fat and how much of it's muscle. Okay. Well, for, from an administrator's standpoint, I'll tell you, there's not a lot of money in that. That's why there's not a lot of push for it. Yep. The, the body density, bone density, all those, those measurements, those tools, it just... And that's going to be, you know, follow the money. Sadly, it's true. Willie Loman rule. Mm -hmm. E.T. himself, William Brewster. I've found that magnesium bis, uh, bisglycinate works well for sleep. Must be taken with food throughout the day. Total, perhaps 600 milligrams per day. Um, I'm, I would agree that the evidence indicates that the vast majority of us are magnesium deficient. So, uh, and and magnesium deficiency can have a negative impact on sleep as well as um, mental health, anxiety, and depression, as well as uh, some things regarding your heart. So I recommend that all of us uh, look at some type of magnesium uh, supplementation. ET himself just enrolled, emailed your store for shipping information for Canada. Okay. Uh, Michelle can maybe, you may need to get Michelle to help you as well. Harvey Ops, great session today, as always, folks. Don't forget to click the like button. Yes, so as usual, I'm getting the the uh, the like buttons for for Facebook, but not for YouTube. Uh, Blue Rose, nice session. Thank you so much, Blue. Keep going, young men. There you go. E.T. himself. Yes. Likes help out. Robert Wise. And it's true when you do a like and especially if you if you uh, click on us and take um, take the link over to another uh, another social media like Facebook or Twitter. And then that pulls eyeballs over to YouTube from there makes a big, big difference. In terms of the A.I. Okay, so Robert Weiss, sorry, left out some details. Walk 80% for three quarters of a mile. Jog 90% for a fifth of a mile. Hit 100% for, okay, 0.05 miles. Okay, so that, that sounds a lot more like the sort of thing I would, um, I would recommend. You might want to do, um, here's, the, here's 
what I tend to recommend. It's slightly different. It's uh, start off with three uh, intervals and an interval is a high intensity phase and a low intensity phase. High intensity phase, a minute or less, and a low intensity phase, uh, a minute, about a minute. Work up to uh, 10 of those and then uh, work up to two of those sessions per week. Don't go higher than 10. Uh, you, if, if you start getting higher than three per week, you really need to back off and increase the intensity of the intense phase. Don't increase the duration of the intense phase, increase the intensity. Any comments, Will? I think you're right on the money. So physiologically, here's part of the issue and here's what we're trying to correct. Uh, insulin resistance <clears throat> decreases our, uh, insulin our insulin receptors quit responding <clears throat> as well to insulin. The microvasculature, the microscopic arteries, <clears throat> capillaries, veins that, that go to our muscles start losing that connection to our muscle. Well, <clears throat> that's exactly what uh, high intensity intervals impact. Not, not only does it increase the sensitivity of the receptors, it also pushes, stresses, and therefore improves that microvasculature to those muscles. That's the goal. Uh, William Brewster is reducing my endurance from two grams to one gram, which helped me take my LPA, LP little a down from 150 to 74. Worth the risk of it increasing slightly as my glucose level went up recently to 101, a new high. And that's a really good question. And you start getting into, you know, it's just like everything else in life. You're balancing risks one against the other. Um, I am not too concerned about an LP little a at 150. I'm also not too concerned about a glucose level at 101. It's when you start spending hour after hour at 140 or above that you really start burning that glycocalyx, the lining of your artery wall. And from a LP little a perspective, it's when you get to these <clears throat> 300 plus numbers that you really start seeing increase in cardiovascular inflammation. Drax of the North, is a daily supplement of 500 milligrams niacin effective in lowering LP little a when used in tandem with Crestor? You, you have to measure it, uh, Drax. It, for some people, you know, I've seen some people take 250 milligrams of endurocin or niacin and uh, knock their LP little a down by three quarters and other people have no impact at all until they got up closer to two grams. Will, are you familiar with LP little a? You nope. Know? So uh, you're familiar with the TV show, um, the biggest loser. Mm -hmm. There was a fellow, what was the name? Bob Harper was the trainer on that show. He was in his early fifties uh, very little body fat, good muscle, uh, and spent most of his job working out, helping the, the, big, the losers work out. And one Sunday in his early 50s, he was doing his own personal workout, and he collapsed to the floor, and it turned out to be a heart attack. And people said, dang, what's going on there? And sure enough, uh, about a week later, he came out and said, 
It was LP little a. Now LP little a is, uh, you know, the, it's the protein, it's a, a genetic variation of the protein that forms LDL. We've known about it in cardiology and cardiovascular risk programs for decades, but for a long time, the assessment was, well, you can't do anything about it. Well, that's not entirely true. Niacin actually decreases LP little a. They've tried other things too, like phoresis. And phoresis, you know, you can decrease it. Uh, LP little a with phoresis, but again, you're a hospital administrator. You know what, what what kind of costs and machines get involved in. You know these are like plasma phoresis and dialysis kind of things. And with all that, you'd still only get a week or two of improvement in the LP little a. Now, um, so I'm going to put that aside for a second and say that over the past couple of years, there's been a major development in this space. Uh, there's a, a drug development, the anti-sense drugs, and they are decreasing LP little a in um, huge ways, like 80 and 90%. They're still going on with the, with the clinical trials. Given what I do, I've got a lot of people with significant LP little a numbers um, as you saw, the fellow that, that was on a minute ago, uh, William Brewster, was talking about uh, a level of 150. Um, the labs will give you a cut point of 30 to 40, and it depends on how, uh, uh, what kind of test you're using. Uh, up to 30% of folks will have 40 or higher. I don't worry about them until I start getting into something, like I said, 300 or more. Yes, it's worth taking a look at. Yes, it's worth uh, trying something like uh, a niacin because niacin tends to decrease it. But I've got some people and I've had some on the show with levels of uh, seven and 800 and higher. So very, very different uh, level of risk for those folks. William Brewster, just did, your, just did your survey for using Medicare and other insurance for your practice. Sounds great. Thank you, William. I appreciate that interest. Most folks are saying that. Uh, ETM South, do you work with the Functional Medicine Group at the Cleveland Clinic? I do not. Don Stewart, lost 45 pounds. I weighed 145. Not much body fat. BMI is 21.5. Wow. Really good BMI, Don. Congratulations. Ken Patu, if using fish, sardines, salmon, herring, cod as primary protein source, do you have concerns over heavy metals accumulation? I don't. And he, I mean, here's part of the issue. You hear a whole lot of people really worried about heavy metals. Uh, heavy metals actually tend to um, uh, concentrate more in the predator fish, the big ones like swordfish and things like that. Um, but I'll also tell you, you know, how many people have you seen or heard of uh, dying from heavy metals accumulation from eating fish compared to heart attack, stroke, dementia, kidney disease. So again, it's like, uh, like Will was saying, you, you go to where the money is, you go to where the deaths are occurring. And um, 
at some point, I look forward to to a world in which that has become a, a bigger risk than diabetes, pre-diabetes. Harvey Ops, Okanagan, British Columbia. Ah, beautiful part of the part of the country. I'm about to <coughs> excuse me in southern interior of BC. <coughs> excuse me, uh, BC. E.T. himself. Ha. Okay. Uh, let me see. We're getting close to the to the end of the discussions for today. How stents Whalen? Dr. Todd Eldridge saw me on short notice last week after an overnight stay for a TIA near Vernal, Utah. He was great in pointing out a left carotid plaque lump that was probable cause. Great. Thank you so much, Hal. I've had I've had Todd on the show several times, Will. He does a thing called CIMT. In your world, the hospital world, uh, you would know that as a carotid ultrasound. And most radiologists think that it's just a carotid ultrasound. However, it's different in that there's a use of a software program which actually estimates how much plaque there is, not so much the flow. In the typical hospital world, the cardiologist world, the neurologist world, where they're looking at these carotids and thinking about carotid endarterectomies, they're looking to see, they're looking at flow studies. And usually you're not going to get much reaction from folks until and unless, like a stress test is not going to impact unless you get 50% or more uh, decrease in flow. <clears throat> The reality is there's a big issue regarding inflammation and about two thirds of heart attacks occur in people that did not have 50% decrease in flow. So they're not going to get picked up on a stress test. So that's why we look at something like a CIMT because what we want to see is a, if they have plaque. So if you have plaque, you have risk. If you don't have plaque, you don't have risk. You don't need to take statins. The next thing is, if you have plaque, is it soft? Is there inflammation? Is your body attacking it? Uh, cardiologists used to ignore that until the past few years, and now they're starting to take it far more seriously. So thank you so much, uh, Hal, for sharing that, that information about Todd. He does a good job. ET himself, the standard comment method also helps a lot. Mine available, though. Not sure what that means. Keith, did you lose strength during your weight loss? No. Nope. I gain strength. In some areas, larger muscles, probably pretty significant. And smaller muscles, uh, less significant, but forward motion in, in every area. So are you bending the barbell yet when you do your lifts? No, I'm, I'm not the ant yet. I'm, I'm not even a termite. I'm, I'm maybe a, <laughs> a slug. There you go. At least you're not a slug. So Keith, also did testosterone levels change? Don't know. I've only looked at mine a couple of times. Don't know. I haven't had that. Didn't didn't get that test. But I, I get a lot of so. people ask me about uh, testosterone replacement. In the very beginning, I was worried about it. The studies have been done, which are pretty conclusive now, that testosterone uh adding testosterone, exogenous testosterone or prescription testosterone is not really 
the cardiovascular risk that a lot of us were worried about early on. Um, those same clinical trials would also indicate that it doesn't have the impact that most people hope for. Um, the major impact is a very, very soft, uh, soft finding. It was a slight increase in improvement in sleep. I don't provide uh, testosterone because uh, still in most states, testosterone is actually a controlled drug. You can find, and, and I want to be able to protect my, I've got licenses in all 50 states. I want to be able to protect those. Uh, if you get in trouble with one state, it's like a ripple effect through others. Um, and my major focus is cardiovascular, uh, cardiovascular health. <clears throat> there are groups, by the way, uh, HIMSS for example, is one group that is doing uh, testosterone replacement on a, uh, on a telemedicine basis. ET himself, not available though, comment section. I don't understand that. So thank you so much, Will. That gets us to the end of the broadcast, the end of the show. And um, I would say, again, you gave us some great insight into why there are so many challenges in medicine why there are challenges with hospital care. It's just like you got to, it's an impossible juggling act, just a completely impossible juggling act. Uh, good people, good managers there, folks that um, have good ethics uh, a, a lot of times and do the right stuff in terms of management, just like you just did with your health. You know, you start saying, okay, I got to measure some things and uh, have a positive impact. But still, there's a lot of work to do to get where we need to be. Yeah. Yeah. You have a great story in terms of looking at your lifestyle. You, you point out something that a lot of people don't get. In fact, most people, most people think, you know, if I, I got to have a new drug, the drug's going to do it. And I've been spending a lot of time talking about these two new blockbuster classes SGLT2s and CLIP1s, and you demonstrated for us that, yeah, they can help a whole lot, but until and unless, you know, it's like we say, you can't outrun a diet issue. You can't out-medicate a diet issue. You can't out-prescribe it. You got to deal with the lifestyle first. That's what I found to be the case. Thank you so much, Will. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at prevmedhealth.com. To learn more, watch our videos on YouTube at Ford Brewer MD MPH. Thank you very much for your interest.